Hello and welcome to episode 52 of Lime Ninja Radio. I'm your host, McKay Rippey, and with me in the studio is Aurora. Hello. She's our producer. Today we have some news for you. I think it's exciting. Aurora? Yep. Uh, we're going to be experimenting with a new format. Starting in October, we're going to try having uh, four new episodes in the first week, and it's going to be based around a certain theme. And Right. So the idea is that if you're interested in the topic that we're presenting, you can dive in and get a new episode every day for four days in a row instead of having to wait another week for that episode. Yeah. And the, we, we think that's going to be very interesting for you. Of course, if the feedback comes back that you hate it and you'd rather have things come out, drip out slowly once a week, we're more than happy to do that. Yeah. But we think this is going to be a good way to dive into a topic around Lyme disease and brain fog in particular. Yeah. Although we'll get into some other topics as well. We haven't quite laid out the, the timeline yet. We just think it's a really good way to go deep into a subject and not really, you know how the week goes on and weeks go by and you start losing interest in things or something else pops up there. Yeah. So if something grabs your attention, you're going to have the data, the recordings, the episodes, the knowledge, the knowledge right there and you can get right into it. Yeah. So we're just going to try it out and we'll see how it goes. Yep. Let us know if you if you do have some thoughts or ideas before we get into this. The first time we're going to do this is October, in October just the first right? week of October. Yep. So the first time we're going to do this is in October. If you have some feedback, you have some thoughts about it, please let us know at what's the email address? Feedback at LimeNinjaRadio.com. Feedback at LimeNinjaRadio.com. Okay, let's talk about our guest, Aurora, Jerry Simons. Jerry Simons graduated with honors in 1993 from Stony Brook Health Science Center with a Bachelor's of Science degree in Cardiorespiratory Sciences. He graduated from the Cornell Medical College Physician Assistant Program in 1995. Upon graduation, he began to work for Dr. Joseph Burriscano in East Hampton, New York. After Dr. Burriscano retired 11 years later, Jerry began working at the Morrison Center as well as at the East Hampton Urgent care. While at Dr. Burscano's office, Jerry helped launch the ILADS Physician Training Program and was asked to work with the growing Empire State Lyme Association, where he gives lectures and visits support groups. Soon after, he was recruited to be featured on a local monthly TV program about tick-borne infections and was asked by CALDA to author the From the Expert series for the Lyme Times. He has kept up with the field by attending regular CMEs, including ILADS lectures, as well as immune System seminars. He is a frequent local, state, and national lecturer on medical CME topics. Jerry currently lives in East Hampton with his wife of 12 years, as well as their two children. All right, Aurora, thanks. And here's the interview with Jerry Simons. Hello. Hi there. Excellent. Okay, fantastic. Good stuff. So, great. Yeah, so I was looking at your website before. You just talked to Horowitz, I see, too. I did. About, we, we yeah, just, about three, uh, four weeks ago. Um, in Times Square with Zymogen, so that was pretty cool to compare notes. Nice. So, mm-hmm. so how long have you been at this? 1995, I joined Burescano's office, and we saw our first, well, that's when I started seeing my first line patients. So what did you think at the time? Well, one of the reasons I got into it is I had had Lyme disease myself. Oh, uh, okay. 
living down the street from Burescano's office, we were in an insanely Lyme endemic area. So I had seen some of the people previously labeled as being lazy or nuts get Burescano's protocol and return to full amazing function even to this day. So that's part of what got me into it. And my grandmother was a patient of Burescano's and she was the one that kind of got us hooked up. So very cool. And then, so my other question for you is physician's assistant. That's a little bit unusual medical path. I mean, especially back then. Sure. What? I mean, yeah, basically it's a four year pre-med degree. Yeah. And then I did two and a half years at Cornell med to get my PA. And then, um, basically according to state laws, I can practice doing whatever, um, the physician partner I'm working with so delegates. So, you know, when Burescano would take his two weeks vacation, you know, we're just seeing patients, you know, doing all their IVs, doing pick lines, doing everything. So I basically it's full duty, but without the title. Right. So, mm-hmm. That's... so I've seen patients, some patients there that he only met, you know, just in the hallway. So we kind of had all of our own flock and all of our own following. So, so since, and how long had, he, had Dr. Burscano been in practice before you joined his office? He started in the early 80s. I believe it was 82 or 83. And then, you know, end of that decade, 88, 89, started looking into this whole Lyme disease concept. Right. So you can't, you were there early on. Yeah. Before we were still trying to figure out a lot of things when we first started. So t- let's talk politics gently so you can bow out or dodge anything you want to here. So what, what's the trajectory that you see? Cause since you were really there from the beginning, where, where do you see this headed in, in the near future? Not, not the end game, but. Right. Politics wise. Yeah. Um, even though it's not where we want it to be, I still think amazing things are happening. You know, Nature Magazine, Johns Hopkins, all these people are publishing and using the word persistent Lyme disease, it's, which is huge. It is huge. Government regulations, New York State and other states have bills that recognize um, the concept of chronic Lyme disease, which in 1995, um, if someone would have said, would Johns Hopkins publish something on persistent Lyme disease? I would say, that's impossible. We're never <laughs> going to get recognition from any of these people. So, you know, I definitely see the tide turning. Now, they've got a lot of time to make up and a lot of errors to undo, but definitely there's some progress. Even what has every Lyme disease doctor in the universe salivating all of the new research on um, daptomycin, the cubicin antibiotic, mm-hmm. real elimination in persistent Lyme disease. That's coming from people in the ISDA and in Johns Hopkins. You know, plus you have Eva Sappy publishing on Cemento and Banderol and herbal medications uh, with the University of New Haven. So, I mean, definitely we're seeing huge progress. Again, we still can be angry because it's not where we want it to be, but definitely things are moving more in the right direction than the wrong direction. 
And so what do you say to those, you know, because the, the Lyme community, as, as I get deeper into it, they're some of the most educated people, and they're also some of the most frustrated people out right. there. And well, they have to be educated for their own survival, you mm-hmm. know, they, just to be able to, to function. And even one typical Lyme disease doctor may not be able to keep up on every innovative viewpoint or concept. So it's a learning community on both sides of the exam table. You know what I mean? Absolutely. Absolutely. And what what do you say to them? Because they've been in bashing mode so long that there is some of these major breakthroughs that happen. And they're kind of almost reflex at this point because they've been trained so long is to, but, but, but that's not enough. It's like, they're still, they're using the wrong model and they're, they're, they don't quite have the whole picture there and they don't understand. Do, do scientists need some encouragement or can we keep bashing them? <laughs> well, they definitely need some loving encouragement because what's the problem with Lyme disease research? The problem, McKay, with Lyme disease research is those of us in the trenches are spending 10, 11 hours a day just trying to keep our patients alive, keep marriages together, keep jobs and families functional. If we had time to do a whole research database, we wouldn't be able to treat as many patients we have. Right. So that's the big Lyme research question. Can you take care of a full slate of patients and do meaningful research? That's been insanely difficult. Um, so that's the first point. So that's why when we see some of these big institutions starting to, to give us some data, we get so excited. And again, you know, to all the naysayers, we say, look at the data. There definitely is data coming out. The same way in the 50s, people got bashed the exact same way with the concept of syphilis. Yes. Oh, the people from, from the Battle of Europe and the Battle of the Bulge in Korea, they're just war-tired. They're not really sick. You know, the same exact concepts we're going through now. And the eventually gul- the data right. all came in their direction. Yeah. Similar to the kind of Gulf War stuff, although they seem to be believed a little bit more, but it's all vague and mysterious, right? Until until they track it down, right? So we're seeing we're seeing some fundamental changes very slowly, but we're definitely heading in the right direction compared to even four or five years ago. Yes. Yeah. So with with these types of study, is that what it's going to take? Let me let me back up just half a beat here. Uh, in a nearby town called Chittenango, there is a physician who I've, I've been to a support group up there and heard a story. So th- the woman goes in to get the diagnosis, says, you know, I, I got bit by a tick. I saw the tick. I really think I need to be tested for Lyme disease because I'm starting to have these, these symptoms. And mm-hmm. her doctor said, we don't flat out, we don't have Lyme disease in Chittenango. And across the street at her vet, when she takes the dog in, oh, the vet's saying, oh, I think your dog's got Lyme disease. Let's wow. go ahead and treat it. So is, is this data, are these studies, is this breakthrough going to help to get through to those type of doctors who have gotten word from somewhere? Because they're not making it up. It's like they've gotten the, there is no chronic Lyme, there's no Lyme disease in this area, whether it's from the health department or whatever they're getting this from. I mean, well, basically, some of the things that we're seeing is we do know that Lyme disease is in all 50 states, whether that's because birds or animals are migrating or 
how the turkeys are moving the Lone Star tick all around the Northeast. Um, we definitely know that Lyme has been established in each, you know, in each individual state. The second thing is if some doctors just aren't looking for it, then they're not really believing that it's there. You know, you don't see what you don't know. That's a famous motto that's taught in medical schools and on medical student bumper stickers and all those different types of things. So though it's more of changing and educating the physicians both from a public health standpoint and from a medical standpoint. Both of those things are what we're working on. So if somebody was sitting in their doctor's office and they say, well, I really don't want to do that Lyme test. I really don't think it's prevalent around here. If the patient said, you don't see what you don't know, were you likely to get booted out of the office? <laughs> exactly. But here's the thing. Like I always tell the people I argue with, yeah. I'm like, why don't you look to the data and look at the science? One of the biggest things that's helped our community is when the Center for Disease Control removed the criteria for blood tests to diagnose Lyme disease. That was huge and epic. Even right now, McKay, if you go to the CDC mm -hmm. site and it says, how do you diagnose Lyme? They've had a, it, they're in an endemic area and they have the symptoms. Hmm. Stop. You've got your diagnosis. Right. No blood work required. Save the hundreds of dollars of blood work and false negatives. If they have the symptoms, and they're in an endemic area with ticks, you can go ahead and treat. Now, if I tell these doctors, if, they, if you're following the CDC protocol, which is that, mm -hmm. you're in an endemic area, and that's something we have to argue with them, whether they believe they're in an endemic area exactly. or not. And you have symptoms, if you treat them and they start having a Herxheimer or an improvement, there's your diagnosis right there. So, the other thing that helped us is when they declared there weren't 30,000 cases. Yes. That's 300,000 cases. And, you know, some of that's our fault. How Especially so? in this practice, you know, we forget to ask patients, hey, I know you've been to 10 other doctors and you've had Lyme disease for six or seven years, but do you know if your Lyme disease case was ever reported to the government? Uh. So if every Lyme disease doctor made sure that every Lyme disease case was reported, you'd see those numbers go up even more. So... That's, you know, the, the reporting, the paperwork is always, always a problem. I mean, it's such a short form. It's a three, it's a, it's a three by five corridor, something to enter online. It's not as painful as when we had at Bureau Scano's office, these carbon copies and you had to mail different <laughs> copies. Yeah. Now you click a box and you send it in and you're increasing your numbers. Just last week, I think, you know, of our chronic Lyme people, some of who had been sick since beer scanner days, they didn't know whether their case was ever reported. So, well, That would be a fun little campaign to mount on Facebook or something is make been sure trying your, your it. case. I've been asking every patient here, let's yeah. report your case of Lyme disease. I'm writing that down. Excellent. Great. <laughs> I'll help, help get the word out on that one. It's not about CDC doesn't require a blood test anymore. Ah. Uh, Mm -hmm. So they've gone away from that in terms of counting that as an actual case. You don't need a positive test? Nope. To diagnose Lyme disease, you need to be in an endemic area. Okay. You need to have the symptoms. Do they define the endemic areas or do they leave that kind of they kind of leave gray? Kind of, 
I mean, they have a little map where most of um, the cases have been, but again, that goes back to this problem of reporting. Right. It's a right. A circular problem. It doesn't report, so you're not endemic, and so you're not endemic, so you can't diagnose, so you can't report. Right. And so forth and so on. So, Stuck. Mm-hmm. Vapor lock. Right. But again, we're starting to break out of that cycle, which is huge. So, so slowly but surely, that's the progress we need. So one thing I want to talk to you about is... It's the Herxheimer and detoxification, because I know also major strides are being made in that area and understanding the genetic variability in methylation and and as we get more sophisticated, probably other areas there. In some, when I talk to some people who've been through Lyme and many Lyme treatments, sometimes Herxing seems to be a badge of honor. And right. I always wonder how much you're Herxing because you're toxic. Well, you're herxing because you're actually disrupting the germ. And as that germ is broken down and destroyed, you're reacting to the germ particles and you're also reacting to the toxins that are released from that whole reaction. So when you have a herxheimer, you're actually killing off Lyme disease germs. Right. So that's, that's, so they get excited about that, but you, in not talking- everybody can have a Herxheimer. We have people, they're on the right medication and then they just start feeling better. They just start feeling better. Mm-hmm. I, I, my question is, can you Herx too hard, too fast, too much? Can you do lasting damage doing this or is it just temporary pain? Well, we've never really seen anybody do lasting damage, but okay. we've certainly had people have a very intense Herxheimer. Especially we have a patients that come to us after years of being sick. And the first thing we do for them is we put them on cyst busting treatment mm. like petronidazole or Tindamax. Um, and when they break open those cystic forms that have been ignored, they can have a tremendous Herxheimer. So very, it really doesn't cause long-term problems, but people could be set back in their treatment a couple of weeks from something along those lines. Okay, good. Mm-hmm. So my concern was that, you know, with the release of some of the toxicity in some of these die-offs that, you know, especially somebody who's already compromised, that it it just might be doing some damage to them. So right. It, Usually it's just the reaction of a germ. Okay. So mm-hmm. just the body getting getting all riled up and getting... Oh, here's an interesting story. If you're having a Herxheimer, how can you tell kind of what your active germ load is? We have them come in during a Herxheimer and we check that T-cell count, the CD57, mm-hmm. and your complement, complement 3, complement 4, activation. If you're having a Herx and your CD57 goes low compared to your baseline number, you know you still have a lot of Lyme left in your system. If your CD57 is going up, then you know that you're really making progress. You're getting rid of a lot of germs. So. And then are, are the, is that processed out through the liver, through the kidneys? A little bit of both. A little bit you know, of both. And it also depends on what medication you're on. For example, the cephalosporins like, um, like teflaro and rocephin are almost exclusively excreted through the liver and the gallbladder. You know, other medications may play, play more heavily um, on the kidney. So it depends on what the attack, what organ system is being used. And then, so once you see that the bacterial load 
And let's say even some of the co-infection loads, the viral load or whatever else happens to be tagging along is, is really decreased. How many people do you see really then need to, quote unquote, rehab to kind of recover their gut function, um, just to recover their strength? Yep, almost everybody. You know, the other, you know, we know that <clears throat> what's making news in 2015 is the cubicin or daptomycin. IV, and also the whole concept of the gut microbiome. Yeah. But, you know, and how the gut microbiome directly interacts with your immune system. So we're almost always actively treating the gut microbiome, checking for SIBO, parasites, you know, kind of along that same lines as we're actively treating the Lyme. And what's your either thinking or actual knowledge of how... How does Lyme do that to us? It's like, how does Lyme open the door for all these other problems to really come to the forefront? So, you know, maybe we're going along with the little herpes virus in us and from time to time we have a cold sore and, or, or a little bit of bowel overgrowth or then all of a sudden we get the Lyme and, you know, we have our initial reaction to Lyme and then maybe something else triggers it like a vaccination or some other illness. And then all of a sudden all, is let loose. All of Hades is let loose. Right. Well, we definitely know that Lyme disease is famous for hiding out in the body. You know, we've seen that teenage kid um, that had a summer flu when he was 17 or 18, and then he moves to the city to go to college and develops Lyme disease when he's 21, which is that germ basically hiding out in the body from that summer flu that he had as a teenager. In the same way that with viruses, your immune system can keep things in check, um, so too it can with Lyme disease. Stony Brook, in their Tiger Sillen article, actually very eloquently described that process. But the other thing that makes it interesting is when you get bitten by that tick, you can get multiple types of Lyme disease in very low levels, and they can kind of fester and fulminate in your system and kind of reach that critical mass um, and cause symptoms. I would basically say that Lyme disease, like tuberculosis, has an insanely long incubation period. Ah, okay. Mm-hmm. Now, and, and with, that, with that, so over the years, we've got antibiotic-resistant TB, we've got antibiotic-resistant staph, do you see a danger of the Borrelia heading in that direction? Um, actually, I don't, because when used properly um, and rotated, what we pioneered at Burescano's office, something called pulse dosing, mm-hmm. a kind of brief attacks of very high dosing, um, we tend to have um, pretty good results if we're seeing patients regularly and mixing up medicine. Even something as small as changing around the cycle of doing bicillin or taking a few extra pills or rotating in a cyst form or an L form treatment, mixing it up just a little bit um, helps to prevent that research. You know, for example, look at the, the data from the, our friends in the dermatology community who will give antibiotics like doxycycline and minocycline for months and even years yeah. for pills. And you see very little resistance to that. Hmm. 
Okay. Also, the rheumatology community. Rheumatologists use the drug called minocycline not as an antibiotic, but as an anti-inflammatory for rheumatoid. They'll give an elderly lady with rheumatism, you know, months or longer of an antibiotic because it works like an anti-inflammatory. So speaking of your colleagues, how many, and this is another total guess, but off the cuff, how many cases of Lyme do you think are out there misdiagnosed as rheumatoid arthritis, as MS, as ALS, as chronic fatigue, whatever the label? Oh, I definitely think it's huge. We've seen a lot of that data. For example, in the rheumatology community, they're like, wow, I had a lady with rheumatoid arthritis. I gave her minocycline, which is on the American College of Rheumatology website as a, as a treatment option. And like, wow, she just suddenly got better. She <laughs> felt terrible for a week and a half. That's the Herxheimer. Then she started getting better. So, you know, we've had people that have come here, you know, with a decade of insane fatigue, chronic fatigue, thyroid, diagnosed as demyelination, whatever. And I'm like, listen, lady, you spent thousands of doctor's visits, traveled all over. Let me give you $45 of doxycycline and just try it for three weeks and see what happens. So certainly compared to a $500 blood test, if that $45 of doxycycline does something for her, A, we're making her feel better and we're saving the health system thousands of more dollars. And here's a personal question. I have a patient who came into me. So what I, as I've been, I'm become aware of Lyme, I'm an acupuncturist. And as I've become aware of Lyme disease, I start seeing it in my patients. And right. I, I had this, this, uh, let's see, he's probably about 50 year old male came in, man came in and he's been diagnosed as some exotic, it's so, so exotic. And he's been all up and down the East coast and every major medical center. It's such an exotic, um, autoimmune disease that they don't even know what to name it. Now they've given it a, a diagnosis so that he can build some coding for it. Right. And I tell you what, this man has, he, he has been tested for Lyme's multiple times and mm-hmm. one of the tests came back positive. Right. And he wasn't treat, treated. God only knows why. One of the worst periods of his life was when they put him on a steroid to reduce the, the active of the, activity of his immune system, right? So he felt worse. And for a while he was feeling better with IgG. So I'm, I'm trying to, I'm going to send him down to you. I'm going to sit on his head till he comes down to you. Um, So the question though, is he has pretty severe demyelinization of the motor neurons in his legs. Mm -hmm. Is, Is there any chance of any of that coming back? I mean, it depends. We would look at, um, like his EMG, how his IgGs respond to, um, you know, how his strength and how his immune globulins have responded to that treatment. We do the small nerve biopsy here to get an idea as to what the situation is. Mm-hmm. And a lot of that we would then do, we have like a demyelination protocol with alpha lipoic acid and antibiotics and all these other different types of things. Then we would compare that data before and after to see what kind of progress uh, there might be. So that's really a case-by-case basis. But, you know, our nurse Denise here will tell you the story of a teenage patient uh, we had who just put his 
wheelchair on eBay, which was pretty impressive. <laughs> now, there you go. That's an ad and a half. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Good for him. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's fantastic. Yeah. And not all the cases are that bright and rosy, but those yeah, are the, of the ones that you really want to focus on. Well, so in this guy, if he's done $200,000 of IVIG, and I wouldn't be surprised it's that expensive, um, you know, we'd say, listen, Try a couple hundred dollars of antibiotics and some nerve boosters, and we're going to see what happens to you. And see what happens, yeah. Right. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. I'll, I'm going to sit on his head. Yeah. That's it. Because it, anyway, that's I'm tongue tied because it's so frustrating, and you must be even feel even more so being closer. You know, in the alternative medical field, you kind of expect mistakes to be made because I, you know, I'm sure you see my mistakes, I see your mistakes, kind sure. of thing. Yep. So, mm-hmm. Then so, we compare notes and they all kind of work out. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. But, but but to see something basic, I think Lyme disease is something basic. I mean, it's an infection. It's it's pretty simple. You know, it it's listed on the CDC, the criteria, and you don't need a test. But because of the ignorance or the time crunch that the doctors are under, that it's just one. It's, I don't know if they feel like it's one more diagnosis that I have to be responsible for. But it's just like, come on, guys, this is your job. Right. Mm-hmm. We, ha- we have a, there's a rheumatologist in the area who just gave a lecture. The title was, I was going to do a lecture on Lyme disease. He brought all kinds of people out of the woodwork. And the first thing he said was, there's no such thing as chronic Lyme. What you have is something like r- Lyme rheumatoid arthritis or Lyme arthritis or something strange. That, mm-hmm. And it, the people who had Lyme uh, didn't throw eggs at him, but they, they wanted to leave so that's when you calmly raise your hand and yeah. you say, um, so you're saying we should fight Johns Hopkins <laughs> about their concept of persistent Lyme disease? You know what I mean? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. That's great. You know, so, you, and again, you know, Dan Cameron wrote that article on chronic Lyme disease. He's got a ton of great references there. I just keep giving it back to them. You want science? We'll give you science. Again, as we mentioned before, it's not perfect, but 20 years ago, we had nothing except uh, charts and patient stories. Now we've got data. You know what I mean? Yeah. I think one of the things that – so I talked to some people from uh, Lyme Support Group, the local one here, and – think they were mostly disappointed so they didn't go prepared to have an argument they went prepared to with hope is like finally there's somebody in our community who's acknowledging what we're going through and 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 then they're they kind of let the rugs pulled out from under them and they weren't mentally or emotionally prepared to to have a rebuttal so I may, know. maybe that's the story is like have have your studies in your back pocket all the time yep let me tell you, the amount of times we have to fight with an insurance company on an average day, we've just got kind of our standard spiel, you know, and we just keep adding data onto it as it comes along. And how is that going? Are they loosening up a little bit, or are they still fighting tooth and nail? I mean, they're loosening up a little bit, but, you know, the healthcare is so becoming the party of no. Yeah. You know, the argument is, do I want to give one Lyme disease patient a month of antibiotics, or do I want to buy 200 flu shots for 200 people? You see what I mean? Yes. Kind of the the mindset that they're getting into. So that's a little difficult, but certainly if we've got the data, it's, we're able to make some progress, but you know, patients have to understand to get approval. That could be like a 90 minute 
process to write a letter and collate and send, call the insurance, wait online, argue with them. You know, so it's a big time investment. Lastly, well, almost lastly, I'll give you the last word. You're, you're, are you still a volunteer fireman? Uh, well, not as much. I'm still on the registry, but not as much because I promised my wife I wouldn't do that as much until my kids are grown up. So. <laughs> do you- yeah, church work, nature conservancy, you know, I've done all kinds of other things. Because when I, I tell my patients, I'm like, you have to have a, a life out of Lyme disease. Yeah. So I try to keep a lot of the advice that we say. So it will it will take every bit of you if, if you let it. It will. You're right. Yeah. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. You've been very kind with your time, and I want to give you the last word in terms of anything you want to say to people listening or contact information for your clinic, the Morrison Center, or mm-hmm. anything else you want to say. Yeah, I'll just tell a couple of interesting things. One of my favorite websites called tickencounter.org from University of Rhode Island. It actually has a map, and you can click on each state and see how many diagnoses of Lyme they've had in each state. Again, some of the numbers are low, but we're getting better, but you'll be able to pull up, you know, uh, you know an individual state and say, you know, well, Florida had 56 cases, but New York State had 5,200, for example. You know, so that's good data to look at. Um, you know, when we were talking about detoxification, one of my great detoxifiers is glutathione, yeah. which you might have heard of. Absolutely. Literally, as patients do it as an injection. The drinkable liquids are the next best option. I don't have a lot of luck with pills and creams. Glutathione injection. And, you know, everybody is caught up with this idea about methylization, and I think they're kind of going a little overboard. One of the things we know when you study genetic medicine is just because you have a gene does not mean that it's active. Yes. Just because you have a car doesn't mean that it's always running. You Mm -hmm. know what I mean? Yep. So there are data points like homocysteine and folic acid and those things to see if your methylization is a real issue or not. So people kind of get carried away with that. And then two other points, the gut antibiotic called Zyfaxin with an X, which works from the mouth all the way down to the rectum, is an antibiotic that just coats the GI tract. And we've seen some amazing results with some of our most unusual SIBO patients. I think I have one of my patients who's on that for, uh, yeah, for SIBO. So yep. that, that's the new one, yeah. Yeah, we do something like Alinea to get rid of parasites, good results with Alinea, and then Zyfaxin. Um, and then two other things, low-dose naltrexone. Even if people don't feel like it's doing something, we really see great long-term results. And that good old-fashioned drug from the 50s, bicillin, injectable penicillin, mm-hmm. it has amazing cure rates. It's easy to take, relatively affordable, works like IV. It's only a few minutes commitment per week, uh, and we still see really good results with that. So you're, you sound very upbeat. Yeah, because like I say, when kids, and this was at 7.40 at night after dealing with Lyme patients for almost 12 hours, right? <laughs> right? So, I mean, the stuff you read is true. People really do get better. Now, one of my issues with the Lyme community is the people who are sick tend to make the most noise. 
the people who get cured want to disappear and go on with their life. So when patients come to me, oh, I went through a Lyme website and I went through two boxes of Kleenex. Like, of course you went through two boxes of Kleenex. The people who don't feel good make the most noise. You know, we have established criteria. We have good science to get you to a new level of victory. Again, we're not able to make guarantees here, but, you know, with all of these protocols, whether it's vitamins, minerals, heavy antibiotics, exercise, acupuncture, you know, all of these different types of things put together, you know, we see people get better, and that's exciting. That's why we're here, you and I, talking late at night to help all these people. Yeah. There is a path out. Right. There is a path out. Again, everybody's different. Some is long, some is short. You know, I tell people, you know, you have Lyme disease. There are 12 major strains, and of those 12 strains, they probably each have 10 subtypes. Yeah. But do you have 10 types of Lyme disease, which is why you need 10 drugs? Maybe your neighbor only had one kind of Lyme disease. That's why three weeks of Doxy cured her. And again, it's going to change over time, you know. And we didn't even talk about Lyme disease viruses, which is another big, huge thing. That's coming down the pike faster than, you know, faster than we expected. Yeah, that's the whole vector-borne illness thing is... it, it seems to me for a long time it was either, you know, something like Ebola or, or something that was going to kill you quickly. Right. Or something totally benign. Correct. Right. Or and something we'll, we have or you're inoculated for, like tetanus. You know, tetanus could be absolutely horrible. But when was the last time you I saw out here as a layperson, you know, somebody with tetanus? Uh, never. Right. Mm-hmm. So true. I think we've forgotten about this stuff. That's true. Mm-hmm. And it's coming, you know, people like you and Burriscano and the Lyme community and some of these other communities are kind of bringing it back to the, the force. Like, no, this stuff is out there and it's a major player in the health. And like you said, the, the bumper sticker, which I hadn't heard before because I didn't go to med school, is you don't see what you don't know. Right. So mm-hmm. we, are, we are on the path to knowing about these things. We are making progress. You know, when I tell people on the IOADS website, there's a two-page flyer for primary care physicians with tons of references. So just print it out, you know, leave it in your doctor's office. Maybe they'll be willing to read it or not, but that's got a lot of amazing bullet points on there. Fabulous. I'll encourage people to... to Remember the famous story, the Turn the Corner Foundation... You know, Buriscano and I and Horowitz, we all won their top award. Turn the Corner Foundation was started with me, Buriscano, and Stacey Groton in Buriscano's exam room. And look at it today. It's the Global Lyme Alliance. You know, that's the kind of progress that we need. Very good. Amazing. Jerry, thank you so much. You're, you're just a bright light out there. Great. And thanks. 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 For your work. Your website is amazing. You got to realize you're helping a lot of people too, and we thank you for that. Terrific. Happy to be your partner. Great. Okay, be good. We'll see you then. All right, take care. Yep, thanks. Bye. Bye. So, were you relieved to learn that her- the Herxheimer reaction didn't have a lasting effect? Because I know on several previous episodes you expressed a concern that. That would happen. I am. I still have my doubts. I'm wondering, you know, you've got that many toxins going through the body. And, yeah, your body clears them out. But just, you know, 
It's like it's one more stress. Your body's already in a world of hurt from the Lyme disease. Mm -hmm. It's inflamed like crazy from the Lyme. The immune system's beat down and not functioning properly. Our detox systems are overwhelmed. And now you've got this major herx going on. Mm -hmm. So maybe it's just like a line at a popular restaurant and all the toxins are waiting to get out. But what are they doing while they're waiting in line to get out? They're making graffiti all over the sidewalk or something, you know? They're doing some damage. So that damage has to then be repaired. So I am relieved to hear he doesn't consider it any permanent damage. Yeah. So does that make sense? Yeah. It's like it's still something, if possible, I mean, sometimes you have to dive in and really hammer at the the Lyme and the co-infections right away because if you don't, you're a death's door and that's your best option. If you can go a little more slowly, if you're lifestyle and situation allows it, it's probably going to be a better experience for you because Herxheimer is as bad or worse than the actual disease itself. On that note... Yes, if you need more Lime Ninja in your life... Visit our website, LimeNinjaRadio.com. There you can find all 51 past episodes. We archive all these episodes so you can go back and listen to them again and again. The best way to learn, the ninja way to learn, is by repetition. I always listen to podcasts I'm interested in at least twice, sometimes three, four, five, ten, a dozen times, really. And then I'll go back to them later. I'll save them on my iPhone. There's always something new that you hear, some other learning. And even going back months later, you're just a different person. You have more information, more knowledge, and they just resonate on a different level. So listen again and again. I implore you. It's for your own good, not mine. It's not like we're charging you to listen. So go ahead and make use of the archives. (laughs) On the website, you can also sign up for our Ninja Insider mailing list and pick up the Lime Ninja Brain Fog Protocol as our thank you. And speaking of brain fog... Right. We've gotten quite a few responses from our little brain fog study. They're not quite enough of them. We had a few people drop out, so I'm going to put out a second call for participants. It costs, what is it, six or seven bucks to cover shipping if you participate with us that way. So send me an email at feedback at LimeNinjaRadio.com. Let me know if you want to try our brain fog study using the Restore product from Dr. Zach Bush. What we'll do is you'll send a small sample and a questionnaire, and you just complete that over two days. It's pretty simple. So far, the results have been encouraging. There's just not quite enough of them. It seems like this is working fairly well. Lastly, the podcast will not be complete unless we left you with the Lime Ninja fact of the day. Although Arnold Schwarzenegger says, I'll be back, ninjas always handle things the first time. Lime Ninja Radio is a purely public broadcast and is not intended to be personalized medical advice for any individual's specific situation. Each individual's medical situation is unique and Lime Ninja Radio should not be relied upon and or considered as personalized medical advice. Lime Ninja Radio is not licensed to render medical advice and should be considered simply the public opinion of Lime Ninja Radio and its guests. Recommendations on specific treatment options are not intended to address any listener's particular medical situation. As always, contact your physician before considering any new treatment.